You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses add value and prepare for the future. Hello and welcome to Trowers and Hamlins series, um, where we're talking to positive influencers. I'm delighted today to introduce Finn, who is the director of Open City. Hi, Finn. Hi. Thanks for having me. So can we just chat a little bit about Open City, which is a, obviously a charity and it's dealing with the built environment in, in, its, in its widest form. How have you, and I know you've only been in post for a year and you started in post in the pandemic, but how have you and the organisation looked to have a positive influence, particularly over the last 12 months? Well, Open City is a remarkable organisation. Even during the pandemic, we've been able to do an amazing amount of great work, I think. But I, I don't think our role is to have an influence i think it's to amplify influence of others you know we're we're, we're a kind of community produced organization it's about bringing people from underrepresented groups whose voices are marginalized in the built environment world and putting them in the spotlight giving them a louder voice in our industry and our sector and wider society so i i think the contribution we can make to london and to cities around the world is is to find Great people, great places that are already fantastic in their own way, but maybe don't get the the kind of limelight that they deserve. And to use our network, our platforms to spotlight those people and those practices to amplify their voice. And I think that in terms of influence, then that will have an influence on our industry, on the built environment industry, on architecture, on engineering. But I think ultimately we're hoping that can have an influence on wider society if society as a whole was more inclusive was more accessible was more equitable was more open to hearing the voices of marginalized groups of people then perhaps society as a whole would make better choices more sustainable choices would build cities in more ambitious and and more ecologically and socially equitable ways but that's only ever going to happen if we're able to listen to a broad spectrum of perspectives and people and so that's what Open City is trying to do across all of our work, whether that's the Open House Festival, which is a kind of enormous, gregarious, citywide celebration of special people in special places across London and other cities, or whether that's our education programmes or our, our year-round programmes. All of it always comes back ultimately to trying to give normal people a bigger voice in these big conversations about city making. It was, what I think is quite interesting is Open City is probably best known for Open House. Uh, and, and you know anyone who lives in London will know the Open House Festival and, and how brilliant that is. But actually, what I've learned over the past of eighteen months is one of the key things it does is look at these other programs. So you've got a program that you run called Accelerate, and I'm just quite fascinated about how that developed. And then, what's your ambition for that? Perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about what that's what that's trying to achieve. Yeah, sure. So I mean, Accelerate is an extraordinary program. We work with teenagers specifically from underrepresented demographics. So, you know, working class young people, young people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds, young people who might be in social housing or on free school meals. And we work with them over a year to develop really strong applications to study built environment courses at university. So engineering architecture, landscape architecture. So these are young people who want to get into city making professions, who are already kind of interested in that world, but maybe don't know an architect. They've never spent time in a in a built environment practice and through a, a, a kind of series of weekly workshops and design mentoring and study trips, we help them to develop not just a kind of great portfolio and some great design skills, 
but feel like they're part of this world already, kind of give them connections into the world through sort of one-to-one mentoring. And that's been going for nearly a decade now. And since it started, about 300 young people have come through that program and gone on to some quite interesting careers in in city making and uh, got into really good universities and uh, are kind of now out there in the world, kind of making change and bringing greater diversity to this sector. But as you say, it's interesting that it's not necessarily been that famous as a, as a program, even though actually hundreds of young people have come through it. People tend to think of Open City and they tend to think of the Open House Festival. My ambitions or our ambitions uh, are to grow that program. At the moment, we're able to work with about 30 to 40 teenagers a year, which is great, but the demand is far higher. There's, there's an enormous number of young people from these kind of underrepresented groups would love to get involved in city making if if we could remove some of those barriers. It's very interesting if you look at the Millennium Cohort Study, which is a study that the LSE does with generations of young people. The only demographic group in society who list architect in their top three dream careers are black women, specifically Caribbean women, which is so striking when you think that there are very, very few black women at the top of the architecture sector, you know, it's hard to think of of many black women who are kind of in the public eye at the at the heart of architectural, the career ladder. And that's, be- that's not because of lack of demands, like clearly young black women really want to be architects. It's because society puts barriers in their way. So if you look at the, the kind of cohort of people who go into architecture schools, it's actually quite diverse, arguably more diverse than society as a whole in Britain. But you look at the people graduating at the other end of this multi-year course and, and suddenly it's, it's totally collapsed. It's much more white. And so I think what that tells us is that there are an enormous number of hidden barriers in city making. It's not just about getting into the courses, but it's then sticking with the courses, being able to set up your own practice, that practice then being able to get press attention, get jobs, get good jobs. So there's an enormous number of barriers facing people from underrepresented groups. It's not the young people themselves who are the problem. They want to get into city making and they're telling us that. So if we can expand, accelerate and open it out to a a larger constituency, then I think that'll be able to make a really, really positive contribution to diversity in city making careers. And I, and I think that's absolutely brilliant because it's very similar in other professions, sort of like the legal profession, exactly the same. Is it's actually people, it's how people come through and, and actually are able to access those jobs and coming up up the ladders that you can clearly see there are hidden barriers there, and we, you know, we're all duty bound to actually work out what they are and how we yeah. can actually start dismantling them and empowering people to actually. I think that, that that's really key. Yeah, and so, it takes time. It takes a long time. Like the demographic change doesn't happen overnight. And although it's great that we can sort of spotlight diverse practitioners who are already producing great work, really the conversation has to also be about the pipeline. How are we bringing young people through into the, the professions so that we can see that kind of proper change happening, you know, in 10 years time and 20 years time. Completely agree. Looking at you, Finn, and, and yourself rather than Open City, so, so looking at sort of your wider interest, how you came into this, what, what was it that brought you into this field? And you're, you're really passionate about what you're talking about. So you know, is, what, what's the background to that? Why, is it, why does it matter so much? Uh, I mean, my, my background is as a, as a writer. I studied architecture. Weirdly, the re- reason I studied architecture was because I was, I was working at, in Nigeria on a sort of placement with the British Council. And I was in the British Council offices in Kano, which is in northern Nigeria. 
and read an architecture magazine, which happened to be in the British Council Library called the Architectural Review. And it was a special issue dedicated to the Agar Khan Awards, which are a very interesting set of awards for buildings in the Islamic world, which have a social value. And this was, you know, like 2007 or something. So quite a long time before social value became a kind of big buzzword in city making in general. But the Agar Khan Awards were clearly ahead of the game and they were discussing all sorts of of projects from like redeveloping an informal market to, uh, you know, social housing, all in the Islamic world. So around the world, but in that kind of context. And it was transformative because it, it was the first time I'd sort of seen how architecture could not just be kind of blingy baubles for rich people, could make substantial positive change in the lives of ordinary people anywhere in the world. And often these were projects that were produced with almost no money, but with exceptional amounts of care and empathy. And it was that moment when I was sort of like, okay, maybe architecture is cool after all. And then I went and studied architecture and then uh, became a writer about architecture. But it, it all kind of comes from that realization that the brand of architecture, which I guess people associate with kind of grand designs and with wealth, is not the full story. And actually, there are there are an enormous number of amazing practitioners who who care deeply about inequality, about using their skill and their craft to uh, improve people's lives. And actually, the more I've learned about architecture and, and, and city making, the more I'm aware of that enormous legacy like throughout the 20th century, extraordinary architects building exceptional social housing estates, not for the, like, the money or the fame, but because it was a way of improving people's living conditions at a time where the quality of life was reasonably low in the UK. So I guess that kind of passion, if it is a passion, comes from a sense that city making doesn't have to just be about money and, and, and commercial exchange. It, it can be about improving the world. It can be about making people's lives better. It can be about um, fighting the climate emergency. It could be about demographic change. It can be about decolonization. There's all of these kind of really important social undercurrents that are wrapped up in talking about buildings and streets and cities. So that's where it comes from. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think one of the, I mean, you know me, I'm, I'm, I tend to be a positive person. So there are positives out of this dreadful year that we've all had in terms of pandemics. But one of the positives I do think is that finally we are talking about inequality in cities in a way that is uh, that a lot of people are embracing and actually understanding that the built environment has a real role to play in how we deal with inequality. Um, and, and so I've, I've been sort of heartened, I suppose, by a number of things, people that I've spoken to who are actually now directly looking to say, no, no, look, there are ways we can do this. And it's not just about the top dollar. So hopefully, hopefully we don't forget those lessons that perhaps we've learned a little bit about in this past year. So what, what do you think um, in your life at the moment, what, what was the best bit of advice you were given? What was it that actually you thought, wow, yeah, that's the advice I need to follow? Okay, Batman says, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. And, you know, if you watch the Christopher Nolan Batman Begins, this is a prominent line, but it comes from the comics as well. Yeah. And what I like about that as a, a kind of thought or a piece of advice is is like it's your actions that count like you can be deep down a good person but if your actions say otherwise then it doesn't matter like what your kind of hidden ethics are and I think that's a, a useful thought because 
I guess, particularly in the West, it's so easy to kind of kid ourselves that we're wonderful people, but then be clocking into day jobs that actually cause a lot of harm. It might be hidden harm, but uh, especially when you're talking about climate emergency or about global supply change, like the world is a complex place. And if you're not critical of your role in that enormous complexity, or you're not thinking critically about the impact of your action uh, further down the line or for someone in another country, then how can you claim to be an ethical person? So I think that Batman <laughs> t- tells us to, to be ethical, to, to be kind of operators in this world. It's our actions that count and that we have to think carefully about everything that we're doing because ultimately that's the only way we can really claim to be judged later in the day. Is, it's like what impact have our actions had rather than how do we feel about them? Yeah, you've just defined what a positive influencer should be. Actually, it is. It's about it's about the actions. Um, someone else said to me, like, it's, it's like complacency is the worst enemy. So you can be very complacent in your life and your and your world and and what you think, and that that actually is one of the worst traits. Um, so always challenge yourself. So I, I I completely agree, and and I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of not doing that and be very pleased with what you pleased with yourself about what you've done, rather than think about what you haven't done mm. or, or to do. So mm. I completely understand that. Um, in, in terms of in, in being able to implement change, because, you know, there's lots of people who might talk about implementing change and wanting to implement change, and but not necessarily doing it. What what do you think the key attributes are that I suppose you have or others have that actually help you do it, help you continue to try and change and to, to try and have that positive influence? Implementing change, right. It's uh, Well, it's hard work is the, is the kind of main thing I wanted to say here, like, if we think about all of the things that are good about society now, the weekend, bank holidays, pensions, equal rights, voting, equal voting, none of those things were given to us as citizens. Every single one of them took an enormous, enormous struggle, sometimes playing out over decades or hundreds of years even. So, I, you know, I have a little kind of story that, that helps me think about this, which is the story of um, George Lovelace, who was a, a Methodist preacher in the, I think, the like early 1800s. And he was arrested with five other kind of um, farmhands so doing work on, doing kind of low paid agricultural work in Tollpuddle, which is in, in Dorset. And they are deported. These six people are, are deported and sentenced to penal labour in Australia. And the reason they are arrested and deported is because they swore an oath amongst themselves that they weren't going to work for less than a certain wage, uh, which was, you know, tiny, tiny wage. But that they had this problem of their employers who are kind of landowning farmers uh, constantly trying to undercut each other. And so they, they got together and said, look, let's just say that we'll kind of introduce a kind of informal minimum wage because this is of course hundreds of years before there was the national minimum wage and for that they were sent to australia and sentenced to penal labor which caused public outcry uh, and over 800,000 people uh, signed a petition which they took to parliament demanding the, a, a pardon for george lovelace and and these these five farmhands which is amazing considering this is a this is an era before radio certainly before the internet to get 800,000 signatures in in, in those days is like a, a, a just astonishing and eventually it does work 
and George Loveless eventually dies in Ontario three years after seeing the, the 1871 Trade Union Act finally allow for workers having their wages cut to organize in and form unions, which I guess is sort of what this this gang of six farm workers were. And so from then on, doesn't happen overnight, but gradually workers are able to make collective demands like, you know, we don't want to work for less than 6p a day and that sort of thing. But what that tells me is just like how far we've come in a couple of hundred years since George Loveless was deported to Australia for having the audacity to ask for a minimum wage, whereas now a minimum wage is like, you know, politically sacrosanct, very hard to, to take that away. But it wasn't easy at all. And that's the sort of the main thing I think that it takes to make change is hard work and determination, the ability to lose again and again and again, but keep having the confidence that you are on the right side of history. And eventually, if you and enough people like you continue to make the case for for positive change, it it can happen and it will happen. But there are a lot of powerful people who don't want that change to happen. And so we shouldn't be under any illusions about how hard it is to make meaningful change. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes collectivity, it takes a sense of solidarity between people, uh, but it is possible and we've done it before and we can do it again. Yeah, so a, a piece of advice I was given, which I've always remembered, was um, don't be scared of failure, be scared of accepting failure. So yeah. you yeah. can fail. That's in life, we all fail at things, but then what you've got to do is learn why you failed and, and go back at it and try again. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's that tenacity, isn't it, that, that helps people change um, yeah, well, think-, think of the suffragettes who, you know, failed and failed and failed and failed to get the votes for women in the UK. And then they won. They were imprisoned. They were force fed. Some of them died. Like It was enormous, enormous battle to get voting rights. But they got there in the end. And, you know, we are lucky to live in a, in a proper democracy now. But it's only thanks to all of those failures and all of that effort that we're able to, to sort of say that. So looking looking back, I think for all of us, there are certain key events that happen to us that just sort of change our outlook or, or define outlook, as you might call it. What would you say the key events that have happened to you are that have actually maybe either changed or focused your outlook? I, th- I mean, I think a lot of people in my generation feel quite shut out of the system. I'm enormously privileged in a number of ways. I was home educated, which I think is an extraordinarily you know, amazingly intimate uh, form of education that has given me a bit of an edge. And I'm grateful and lucky for that. But a lot of my peers are living in a world where like a career for life, affordable housing, being able to have a kid in their their, like early 20s, like things that their parents took for granted Mm. are just nowhere near (laughs) realities for them. And not every, this isn't like for everybody, but a lot of people in in my generation will have never, ever voted for the winner in in any election or referendum, right? They're always on the wrong side of the kind of the mainstream. And I think that that does shape people's perspectives because at worst, it can make you just feel like society's against you. Like if something goes wrong, no one has got your back. And uh, the government won't be there to help you out if if times get tough. But on the more positive side, I think it gives you a real a real kind of clarity of understanding about how much change is needed, and that it's not going to 
come from nowhere that if if you want to make the world a better place it's kind of on you and your peers to do that because yeah it's just not going to happen automatically so i mean that's not one particular event but i think for many peers many people in my generation it's it's not really one particular event it's it's a build up of lots and lots of things that make a lot of people about my age just feel like they don't currently have a proper stake in society and that makes them want to be part of a a major change uh, and that might manifest through activism it might manifest through their their work in in their professional career it might manifest in how they they care for their family and their friends especially i think this year like a, so much of um what's been inspiring about britain's response to covid hasn't really been the response of the government or the response of of, uh, of our kind of leaders. It's been the response of citizens, like citizen support groups setting up almost overnight to support the elderly people in their neighbourhoods. Armies of, of volunteers going to help vaccinate vulnerable people. Like it, it's been the communities that have, have really come to the fore over the last 12 months. And, and I think that's inspiring. And I think maybe that wouldn't have happened if there, there wasn't so many people a bit like me who sort of feel a little bit like change is only ever going to come from the bottom up. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm all for what I call diversity of voice. And I think that we grow and we we get better if we listen to different voices in different generations at, at different levels of society. And, and actually, if you don't, if you shut those voices out, you're only going to go one way and that's not going to work but how you get that diversity of voices is a real challenge yeah. and, I, and I include you know so there's your generation there's also the elder generation who also feel that you know their voice isn't always heard and they're sort of viewed as being washed up a bit and they've, they've had their time and move on and it is interesting I think when you start looking across the piece that that diversity of voice becomes more and more important so we're asking everybody in this series some one standard question, which is what one thing would you like to positively influence over the next year or the next five years? Every year we organise the Open House Festival and about a quarter of a million people come to that festival, which is just mind-boggling. It's bigger than Glastonbury, it's bigger than some cities. It's, it's an extraordinary number of people. And what that tells me is that the general public are absolutely fascinated the built environment, architecture, in city making, and engineering, and all this stuff. They love it. They really want to be part of that conversation. And yet, somehow, if I look around at kind of interesting events that are taking place, kind of leading institutions that talk about architecture in the built environment, they seem to always struggle to engage a broad representative audience. And so something is going wrong. There's something that we, as people who want to make cultural events and big conversations about city making something that we're doing wrong that means that we're not able to reach out to a large audience or include that large audience in those conversations and yet somehow this open house festival manages to transcend that and suddenly for this one weekend in september it feels like architecture in the built environment is a conversation that anybody can have a have a go at anybody can kind of rock up and participate in that dialogue and so the one thing I'd like to change over the next few years is, is finding a way to like explode the barriers that keep so many people out of having a, 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 being part of conversations about the future of cities. Clearly, they want to be part of those conversations. Clearly, the demand is there. We're doing something wrong as, as city-making cultural professionals to not, not include those voices in the conversation. But it's not their fault. It's us. We're doing something wrong. And we need to figure what, out what that is and change how we make architectural events 
inclusive and accessible and open so that we can have that proper diversity of, of ordinary people enriching big discussions about the future of cities. Thank you, Finn. I have absolutely no um, doubt that you will actually achieve that. I, <laughs> haven't. I think it's brilliant. And I think that um, going back to the architecture point, you know, when I was lucky enough to go to university, architecture was always viewed as being sort of, uh, you, you you did architecture if you got a lot of money. And I think that, that's, you know, just exploding that myth in itself is a massive, massive step forward. So thank you very much um, for being part of the podcast today. It's been a joy talking to you. And there's lots of things in there that I think anybody listening can, t- can take away from that and really learn from it. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.